The group of boys as young as 15 loaded onto buses and they left their home. The country that ignored them, corralled them, and at times even hunted them was taking them farther than they had ever been to live on islands that they did not know in an ocean that many of them had never seen. They willingly left high school, missed out on graduations, the younger ones even lying about their age just for the privilege of getting on those buses. A Christian who had grown up in a missionary family had the original idea to gather this group of boys that he knew would be heroic. He might not have opened his mouth if he had also known that the directive to their partners would be to kill them rather than let them be taken. At least, that's the directive that some in the know have passed on to us. See, but that's the thing. It wasn't until 50 years later that their existence became common knowledge in 1992 because their code and thus their existence was still being protected for military purposes. This group of boys was the original set of Navajo code talkers in 1942. They helped the U.S. win World War II, and they literally changed the world. They changed names on a map and prevented other names from taking their place, all in a part of the world that they didn't go to normally. For the past 15 years, our youth group has had the privilege of going to the Navajo Reservation. In fact, this week or last week likely would have been our report service if we'd have been able to go this year. A few weeks, months ago, uh, Grace supported and Green Hills, uh, my parents' church down in La Habra, supported Tiffany and I as we took some supplies to them. That was our mission trip this year, and I would like to report albeit quickly, that it went well and those supplies were appreciated and needed as their stores were still short of many of those supplies even as ours were starting to be restocked. So thank you, Grace, and our friends down in L.A. Thank you to you as well. To our friends on the Navajo Reservation, we're praying for you. But interestingly, as part of those trips a few years ago, One of our students' crews, a group of 10 to 15 kids and staff, were painting a house. We do a number of different kinds of work projects, and a lot of times it's weeding or yard work to help the community, or it's painting a house. And we have sack lunches every every day, wonderful sack lunches. They get tiresome, and you're so hungry that you don't care. But this one day, the owner of the house came out and said, I ordered you pizza. And as our students sat down to take a break from painting, they found out that he was one of the still living code talkers. There's only about five left alive at at this time. At that point in our missions trip, maybe 10 years ago, there were still a few more. But there are not many left. But despite their youth, those men, or 15-year-old boys, as was the case with some, they changed the world. In fact, often, young people change the world. We see it right now as young people, teens and 20-somethings, are fed up with some things about our culture and are trying to bring attention to it. We don't always like how young people go about changing the world. 
but often the world is changed through young people. So it's no surprise when we reach 1 Timothy 4.12 and Paul tells a young pastor, Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Young people have changed the world and will continue to do so, sometimes even as pastors and ministry leaders. And so we have that verse. Again, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. That first part, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Let no one despise you for your youth. Biblically, we are supposed to show respect to our elders. That is clear throughout Scripture. In fact, Paul says that in just a couple verses, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, as he tells Timothy, you're going to have to correct some old people from time to time. But he says to do that with gentleness and respect. But likewise, Christians shouldn't dismiss youth. Immaturity would be one thing. We need to correct that. But youthfulness alone is not. A problem. In fact, quite often the world is changed by youth. So, young people, don't let anybody dismiss your biblical truth speaking or even godly leadership because you're young. Similarly, older people that are listening, and you can decide which category you fall into. I will not be the judge of that, but older people, do not let your biblical, godly truth speaking or leadership be dismissed because of your age. But young people, you need to understand this, because young people, I'll include myself for the moment, there's actually some linguistic reason for that or cultural reason for that, but young people, this isn't a permission to roll your eyes at those of us who are older, or even older than me, or to have an attitude with them. Paul's not telling Timothy that he can just dismiss the older people. Again, there's a biblical precedent against that. It's a challenge to how he pastors. Paul tells Timothy, don't use this statement to not be looked down on because you're young as a dismissive. Instead, use it as a challenge to set an example of holiness, to show your people, young or old, that you love God and that you are worth following. So young people, This isn't an opportunity to go to your parents and say, I don't have to pay attention to you. You need to listen to me. It's a chance for you in your teens and 20-somethings to start being someone that others would look up to and follow. An example of godliness and holiness that can't be dismissed. Take it as a challenge to give them no reason to dismiss you but instead a reason to follow you. And so it says, set an example. In just a few verses, verse 15 and 16, it says to watch your life and doctrine closely. That's the NIV. It's orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Make sure you have the right beliefs or teaching from Scripture, and then make sure you live that out correctly, orthopraxy. Pay attention to what you do and what you think. That's part of setting an example. And we see throughout Scripture that our example matters, that other people are watching. 
I was driving home from L.A. this Friday night with my, two of my kids, and my youngest was talking with me about the gospel and the Bible, and as she spoke, I heard many of our conversations and some of my lessons from the past, and it was a reminder to me that even when I'm not sure about it, they are listening and paying attention. And so we, young or old, need to set an example because people are listening. And that is the point in verse 12, also in verse 15 and 16. But in verse 12, again, it says this, let no one despise you for your youth. Take that as a challenge, but set the believers an example. And then it's, it gives us five areas in particular. That doesn't mean those are the only five areas. Paul's not necessarily being exhaustive here. But he gives Timothy five particular areas to watch in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In speech, our speech matters. In our country, we have free speech. We get frustrated when that is stepped on or infringed upon, and we get mad for good reason. We need to be careful how we correct that. But free speech matters. Restricted speech matters. Mean speech matters. Kind speech matters. You can think of a moment where you or someone else has been mean or kind and how that impacted it. Old speech matters. The things you said a long time ago, especially online, are not going away. Our culture for about a decade with social media is discovering what you say as a 13-year-old can impact a job a decade later. And our politicians, of course, are finding out what you said in the 80s was still on the record. Old speech matters. Nonverbal speech like eye-rolling or a counter-opposite hugging someone back when we could actually hug people. Nonverbalized speech matters like all the times your parents say that they love you and you say nothing back or you just say good night. What we don't say so often matters. That's part of what our culture is calling attention to in regards to racism. It isn't just what we've said offensively, it's what we've failed to say proactively to affirm that people's lives matter. James 3 points out how much our mouth has an impact and what it was intended for. James 3, the last part of 5 and then verse 6. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. See, it was made to worship God. It was made to share the gospel as an ambassador with people around us. It was made to impart grace to someone else. And we use it as an offense. We use it to start fires. We use it to stab people figuratively. And God calls that out in James 3. Our speech matters. Conduct matters. Astoundingly, in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel stands up, looks at the nation and says, publicly in front of everyone, who have I wronged? Let's deal with it right now. There's a few chapters after the nation had rejected 
him, but ultimately God as their leader and requested a king. In Deuteronomy 17, we're told what a king's supposed to look like, and then we have 37 examples of failures as kings. The best that we can get is David, a murdering adulterer. And he was a good king as long as you overlook some things. It isn't until the 38th king, King Josiah, where we see some interesting things in his biography and on his gravestone in Scripture. 2 Kings 22.2, it semi-quotes or clearly quotes, I think it's pretty clear actually, Deuteronomy 17, when it says that he did not turn to the right or to the left. It says that he lived out Deuteronomy 17. He kinged, bad English, great statement. He, for the first time in their history, and the very last king of the nation until the ultimate king, King Jesus, he lived out the law. Not perfectly, but better than anybody. As he tore down the statues that his great, great, great grandfather Solomon and others in between them had put up to worship other gods. He followed God like David, that's the worshiping, repentant side, not the murdering, adulterer side. It also says a little bit later, uh, chapter 23, verse 21, 22, and 23, that he celebrated Passover like had never been before the first ones, never been during the age of the kings. And then it closes out his life in 23, 25, 2 Kings 23, 25, by saying he shemad. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength. That's what's on his gravestone in the tombs of the kings that we read about in 2 Kings. It's an amazing proclamation that his conduct followed God having grown up in a nation that had lost the law. And he found it and he repented for the nation and he lived out God's word. Conduct matters. We need to set an example. Love matters. We need to be a loving people. There are so many places in Scripture that it says this. They will know us by our love. We will love one another. But 1 Corinthians 13 is maybe the most famous or the best definition of love besides the very example of Jesus, by the way. Love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's what we are supposed to be living up to. And by the way, while it certainly applies to marriage... It is not primarily a marriage passage. It is a church relationships passage. It's what's supposed to happen in our hallways and in our parking lot. It's what's supposed to happen in small groups and Sunday school classes, in youth group and at Awana. It's what's supposed to happen when we get a call from somebody who's another Christian, especially if they're in our church, or a text message, or we see something on their social media that we don't like or that we think maybe isn't holy. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And of course, there's only one who has ever lived that perfectly, and it's Jesus. So put his name in there. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude all the way down to Jesus' love never ends. He's the ultimate example of it, but we aren't off the hook because Paul is talking to the very messy church of Corinth, the church that argues over which leader they're going to follow and, and gets drunk at communion and celebrates a son stealing his father's wife, hopefully his stepmom. But think about that statement. When we're hoping that he's romantically involved with his stepmom and not his actual mom, the church has major problems. And it's to them that Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails. The next one, faith. Will we have faith in the face of hardship? Hebrews 11, 1 and 6 point out that faith is hoping in, in things that we don't yet know or have realized. But that isn't blind faith. It isn't a made-up thing without evidence or reason or rationality. And we know that because of how Scripture speaks about faith. There are things that we trust in, but we have reason to trust in them. And ultimately, we trust in God and his word, but it is for reason. It is not just a made-up or blind hope. In fact, the words that are even used here in 1 Timothy 4.12, it's pisteos. It's loosely connected to epistemology. It is literally part of rhetoric. Both of those are philosophical things, words. A few years ago in the youth group, we used the theme Logicon. We pulled it from Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's, it's the, the conjugation there is, is Logiku. But Logicon sounds like Comic-Con, a conference, different things. So we played off of that theme. But it's, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That word spiritual is Logiku. And it, you can hear logic in it. It's connected. It's related. It can be translated reasonable, rational, intelligent. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is your reasonable act of worship. This is your rational act of worship. This is your intelligent act of worship. The word really pulls all of those together. Faith is not blind if you're paying attention to Scripture. Even Jesus, in talking to John the Baptist right before John the Baptist is beheaded, it's actually John the Baptist's followers come to Jesus. John knows the outcome of where he is in jail, and he's getting nervous. So he sends word to his cousin and says, Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus' response is, go look at the evidence. Go look at what the Bible said would happen and then check the evidence to see if I match up to it. Faith 
is sometimes following God in the very particular thing that is so crazy that he wants you to do. And faith is sometimes following God in the most painful set of circumstances that you could never imagine having had to face it as a Christian. And yet God promises suffering, but he also promises that we will, he will walk with us through that suffering. But faith is also knowing why you believe in God. And knowing that you didn't just make it up. And it isn't just because you're born into a Christian family with no actual reasoning behind it. It's that this God exists and controls and is active in our world and I can trust him and there is nothing else worth trusting. There's nothing like him. And then finally, purity. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8 points out, the will of God is for us to honor and respect marriage in a culture that rejects God. Hebrews 13.4 adds to that. That we are supposed to honor God not just in our actions romantically, but in our attitude and thoughts towards marriage. That it's upheld unlike how our culture views it. But scripture is also clear that we're supposed to bring grace to this. Not shame and condemnation. That we honor God for our romantic relationship or our singlehood. Because another aspect of the biblical romantic ethic that challenges every aspect of our culture's ethic towards it is a celebration of singlehood in 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19. See, God calls us to honor him with our bodies whether single or single for a time or married because again the biblical romantic ethic under attacks and confronts every aspect of our cultural ethic which undermines biblical statements but again remember grace where we fail too often we've brought shame in that discussion. And while the Holy Spirit always brings conviction, grace does not shame. Satan shames. Sin shames. God offers grace and peace. And he meets repentance with restoration. So don't look down on our teens and 20-somethings. I get to work with them, and they are amazing people. And they are doing amazing things right now and things that will set the groundwork for decades to come. And by the way, teens and 20-somethings, don't look down on our teenagers or your parents. They are also amazing. Believe it or not, they've actually been at your stage of life. In fact, those boomers that we so quickly dismiss in the 1960s we're doing the exact same thing that, was ha that is happening today. Go look at the history books and it's astounding how similar they are. Now and then. In fact, just don't look down on anybody in a dismissive way. Instead, look at their example. Look at what they're doing. Listen to what they say. All of us should set an example of others or for others to follow, but especially those of us that are leaders, pastors, Sunday school teachers, youth staff, children's ministry, 
no matter how old or young you are, and I know that many of those are temporarily on hold or having to get creative in what we're doing. But we are no, the le- no less examples during this moment, especially for those of us that have those we work with following us online, on social media, or listening to us as we rant instead of lovingly speak truth. Step away from that ranting cliff, by the way. We need to set an example. And in particular, Paul calls attention to five areas. Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. So watch your life and doctrine closely. Our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy are both on display and both are in need of constant vigilance. There's a world paying attention. And we need to direct them to Christ and grace through speech, conduct, faith, love, and purity. Let's pray. Lord, mighty, holy, we praise your name. You are awesome and wonderful. The only example that is perfect in the person of Christ. And yet, Lord, these words are told to us, commanded to us, specifically Paul to Timothy, a young pastor told to set an example. It is okay to live holy. In fact, we must. Not to earn your grace, but because we've enjoyed it as an outflow of grace. And it's okay to want to be a good example to other people. In fact, we must. You have put us in relationships where we watch what other people do and they watch us. And so we need to exemplify holiness. Again, not to earn your grace or favor, but because we've enjoyed it. And in order to bless others by showing them how to live a life of following you. We praise your name. Amen.